Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Julian Dawson to discuss his biography of Nicky Hopkins, rock's greatest session man who played with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Kinks, and many more. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Julian Dawson, author of And on Piano, Nicky Hopkins, The Extraordinary Life of Rock's Greatest Session Man. Julian, welcome. Well, well, it's good to be with you. And that's kind of a bold claim, The Rock's Greatest Session Man. Can you give us a quick CV on Nicky Hopkins to back up that well, claim? Certainly. I certainly, uh, the book was written in 2011. I've never had anyone come to me and, and disagree. Nicky played with the Beatles uh, together and individually, all four of them. He played with the Kinks, the Who, Joe Cocker, Steve Miller, Jeff Beck, Dusty Springfield, Mark Bolan. Um, well, you get the idea. The, the list in the book, the discography is over 20 pages. And I mean, these are all albums you've heard of. I mean, famous albums, John Lennon's Imagine, that sort of thing. So Nicky really was the, the most widespread and varied and in-demand session player of his, of his time. And you didn't even mention the Rolling Stones. He was a big well, part there of There you go. I mean, Great. I overlooked the Rolling Stones, his biggest clients. <laughs> um, he's on he's on the four greatest stones albums of all absolutely and he toured with him he did he, he was on the most the most legendary tour of all time in 1972 uh, the stones at their absolute peak six weeks up and down the usa um pretty decadent time too and uh, that was um partly um caused great problems for him in his private life but we might talk about that later Yes, we will definitely get to that. But let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about uh, Nicky Hopkins' background. Well, he was born into, I would say, a sort of mid middle class um, family, lower middle class, not not wealthy, but not not poor. His dad was an accountant for the company Guinness, uh, the drinks company, in uh, in southwest London, and uh, in West London, and. Uh, Nicky grew up um, in a stable household. He had two older sisters and a brother. And um, he started, I mean, extremely early. His mum, I, I interviewed his mum when she was still alive, and she can remember him reaching for the piano in the house, age three, and playing recognizable melodies on the piano. Wow. Um, this led to him having piano lessons, and he, uh, at a very young age, he won a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music in London and um, studied classical music. But 
having the older sisters in the house, he also heard rock and roll records when they came out, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. And he found that a lot more exciting than the classical music he'd been studying. And at age 16, he was a member of Screaming Lord Such and the Savages, which was one of the very early English rock and roll bands. Um, Screaming Lord Such was a showman, not a great singer, but a great showman. And Nicky and the guitarist in that band were the absolute highlights uh, and, and very quickly gained a reputation for their amazing grasp of blues and Chicago style American piano styles. And Nicky had it all because he'd studied the classical music and he had that uh, amazing gift for, for playing rock and roll piano too. And they recorded with Joe Meek early on. They, he did. He well, one of his very first recording sessions with, was with Joe Meek uh, for the, for until um, the following night. Uh, Jack the Ripper was the first one that Such tried with Nicky on board, and um, Joe Meek, for, for the people who know, was uh, again a legendary early pioneer of recording, recording in a little apartment that he had on the Holloway Road, um, using a sort of um, gaffer taped up tape recorders and all kinds of things to make amazing sounds. His biggest hit was Telstar by the Tornadoes. Um, but Nicky was in, in there, it was in there and toured with Screaming Lord Sarts when he was age 16. Um, things moved on quite quickly at that, in that time. And the entire band that backed Screaming Lord Sarts jumped ship and joined Cyril Davis who was a pioneer in England of Chicago blues, was a really fine harmonica player and well-connected because he played with Alexis Corner, another early legend of English music. And these were an older generation and all the names like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Brian Jones, Paul Jones from Manfred Mann, all these young guys were brought together to, to uh, play together with these older guys. And Cyril Davis had his band, The All Stars, which was the same group of musicians who'd backed Lord Such. And they made another legendary record called Country Line Special, which people uh, agree was the first really good, great uh, blues rock record made in the UK. And uh, many, many of Nicky's famous and later clients, like Pete Townsend from The Who or Ray Davis from The, from the Kinks, said that record was the first time they heard an English band playing sounding as good as the americans and let's hear a little bit of it let this is cyril davies and the all-stars r&b all-stars with country line special Cyril Davies R&B All-Stars with Nicky Hopkins on piano doing Country Line Special. And it's funny to me that the very same band that backed Lord Such, Screaming Lord Such, the founder of the Raving Looney Party later on down the road, and the, the same band goes from possibly the most critically reviled act of its era <laughs> to one of the most critically <laughs> praised act of its era, and all they did was change the front man and the material. Yeah, I think um, Lord Such was probably a pretty volatile person to be working for. As I said, he was a great showman. Uh, he had tremendous theatrics. He was doing sort of horror stuff on stage 10 years before Alice Cooper came along. But he wasn't a great singer. And his, I mean, he was driving around the UK with no insurance, no driving license. So being in his band was probably a pretty chaotic experience. Phil <laughs> Davis was an, yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. Lugging a coffin around and, and all this sort of crazy stuff that went on stage with, with um, lighting fires in buckets and putting them out with water and all this stuff. Uh, so for the guys in the band, it was probably a lot more um, steady and um, promising to work with Cyril Davis, who already had a great reputation in London. I mean, for instance, there were support acts. Were one of the main support acts was a very young band called the Rolling Stones. Yeah, it doesn't get much bigger than that, but it didn't last long. Nicky had always been sort of a frail child, and 
the rock and roll lifestyle, especially the greasy fry-ups that they ate every night, did not agree with him. What happened to him in May of 1963? Well, um, as you say, he was always frail. Um, the 60s was too early for a real diagnosis, uh, accurate diagnosis to be made. But it, the likelihood is that Nicky had Crohn's disease, which is, um, for people who don't know, involves great complications and many, many operations and problems in your internal organs. Um, Nicky were aged 19, right at the, the height of the early success with the Cyril Davis band, where they were gigging all over the place, getting great reviews, had their first single out, was taken into hospital after a, a fall at home, um, which prompted some sort of breakdown in his uh, internal organs. And he was in hospital for 19 months, age 19. I mean, an unbelievable uh, Tragic, well, tragic and harsh, hard, enormous hardship for somebody of his age. Missed out on all the rest of the gigs that they were doing, and nearly died on on more than one occasion. He he was subjected to, I believe, fourteen operations in that time, and was a, a at the end of it was. Uh, I mean, he looked like somebody who'd come out of um, a, a, um, Dachau or somewhere. He was immensely thin, very frail, and but he survived. He had a, a real, you know, fighting spirit. And he, he survived and came out of hospital after 19 months of treatment. Uh, in the meantime, tragically, Cyril Davis died himself. Of, of leukemia, right? Yes. Um, again, an undiagnosed disease. Um, he died very quickly in, I think it was January of 1964. Um, and so Nicky came out and his band um, no longer existed. He was faced with a problem. I mean, he, he he was already by this time really, although he, he I mean, having started at age sixteen, he was in some 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 ways a seasoned musician already, having played in those two very very known well known bands. Um, but he was it was obvious that he wasn't didn't have the the stamina to go out and tour. So there was a real problem uh, that presented himself: how to be in music but not to be in a touring band. And the solution came because the drummer of uh, both those bands, Carlo Little, called Nicky up for a, a session in London on somebody's record. The keyboard player couldn't turn up. And um, this, this session included Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck, and um, who were also young up-and-coming players at the time. And more importantly, an engineer called Glyn Johns, who was one of the who became one of the legendary producers and engineers of the English scene and internationally. And he very quickly realized that Nicky had that magical combination of a feel for rock and roll, but also could read the notes and had training in classical music, which made him pretty unique. And Glenn Johns, who was busy as a, an engineer and later a producer, got Nicky involved in further sessions. And he's playing with quite a famous crew of people. Jimmy Page, who'd also struggled with health problems that took him off the road with Neil Christian and the Crusaders, led him into a session career. There's also Big Jim Sullivan, who was the kind of the other guitar player that could play rock and roll. Yeah. Because you had this context of basically classical and British jazz musicians who really struggled with rock and roll. They could read the notes, couldn't get the feel. And so this new generation comes along and really locks in for most of the 60s. There's kind of a um, – they don't have a glamorous name, unlike the Nashville A-Team or the Wrecking Crew in L.A. or Detroit's Funk Brothers. There wasn't really mm. a name for these guys, but it's it's these guys, I think, could go to toe-to-toe -to -toe with any of these bands. You're talking about John McLaughlin, who later played with Miles Davis. Correct. Mike Absolutely Fickers, right. Manfred Mann, John Paul I, Jones. That's an interesting point that you made, that they didn't have any kind of name like that, because I think English people are so much more um, laid back and, and held uh, and held buttoned down than American, American people, who are very quick to sort of... Um, recognize their own myths and their own legends and, and <laughs> trumpet them. But Britain's not like that. They were just getting on with the job, you know. But Nicky, um, once he got into that fashion world, he was living at home with his family still, with his mum doing his laundry. And um, he, very, he, 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 made, he, he made a statement at one point, I'm going to be the busiest session guy in London. And that in, in the three years from 1965 through 1968, he became that person. And yeah, and you're talking about 12-hour days on the regular, sometimes 20-hour days. 
Well, you 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 were kind enough to remind me that he played with the Rolling Stones. Um, <laughs> Nicky Nicky was a, a a go-to guy for a number of what they call fixers. The guys that booked the musicians would always book Nicky if he was available, and he might be playing with somebody mainstream, you know, mainstream like Engelbert Humperdinck or Anita Harris or or Dusty Springfield. But his daytime sessions would be this, the regular pattern of three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, and three hours into the evening. And everybody else would go home. Nicky would get in a taxi and go and join the Stones and work with them all night at Olympic Studios. So he was working sometimes literally almost round the clock. Man. And his first notable, or the first time he came to my attention, the earliest work that I was aware of as a fan, was brought to him by a guy named Shell Talmy. Tell, him about, tell us about Shell and, and the bands that he connected Nicky with. Well, Shel Talmy was an American who came over to, he, he kind of, um, what we say in English, he blagged his way into the business in America, in, 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 the, in, L- by, in London, by pro- pre- pretending he'd produced a number of things that he didn't actually produce. So he had, he had a, a, a lot of chutzpah and established himself quite quickly as a, as a, a go-to producer. And there were a number of other producers who would also call Nicky um, if they needed a piano player. But Shell was one of the first. Um, he worked with Glyn Johns, who we, who we already mentioned, as an engineer. And um, because the English record companies had this great respect for Americans, and um, Shell arrived at just the right time, um, he, had, uh, he was producing The Kinks and The Who as two of his main clients very early on and got Nicky involved in both those bands. Um, both of them, of course, totally guitar bands. But Shell recognized that in the studio, they needed somebody to fatten out the sound, um, provide a little extra um, zing. And um, neither one of those bands initially uh, w- were upset that, that Nicky was there. They were delighted, I think. And he, the work speaks for itself. The very first two album, he didn't play on My Generation, but on, on tracks like The Ox, which is a great instrumental, or with the Kinks on their early, he played on almost all the hit singles that the Kinks had and the uh, and many of the early Who tracks. Um, and Shel Talmy went on to have his own label. He, he started a label called Planet Records and he would book Nicky for every single session. He, he probably put out 20 singles of different bands. Um, not many of them were hits. Uh, the Creation was one that was, but Nicky was always his go-to piano player. And let's hear Nikki and the Who in The Ox. Ox, named for their bass player John Entwistle, featuring Nicky Hopkins on piano. And it's just incredible the way Nicky Hopkins can slot right in there with crazy Keith Moon, virtuosic John Entwistle, Pete Townsend raging on guitar, and that piano just cuts right through and really shines. It's it's just an incredible testament to his talent because he didn't get it. I think they cut that as a, a improv with no. It no was a jam plan. session. It was a, yeah. yeah. Just incredible yeah. stuff. Keith Moon was Keith Moon was a big fan of surf music, so that was kind of their surf instrumental, and everyone playing on the track got a credit, which is a, one of the rare occasions Nicky was credited for his contribution. Um, but one, I think Pete Townsend said to me um, that you know regarding that amazing uh, ability of Nicky's to fit in like that, that the Who was three soloists playing all the time, so, <laughs> and he still managed to find his space and still managed to add that little extra something that made his presence felt. And uh, I, I talked to a number of musicians who commented uh, that Nicky was really one of the only piano players who knew how to add the piano without treading all over the bass player. You know, that left hand. Yeah, it's just incredible how he could fit in. But he didn't get to play with the Who very long. They had a falling out with Shel Talmy, and he's on their on the Anyhow, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere single. Most of the My Generation mm-hmm. album, but then he doesn't come back to the Who until the Who's next album. 
That's right. I, say, I mean, my, I think in the book I, I, I described that situation as that um, in England they had the phrase, the baby went out with the bathwater. Um, and pro- because the Who fell out so spectacularly with Shel Talmy, he brought Nicky in. So I guess when Shel Talmy went, they Nicky went too. And the Who um, went off on, on their own. But um, they, I'm sure that they didn't have any beef with Nicky, of course. And later on, um, they brought him back into the Who for that. I think their their most famous and greatest album, um, "Who's Next." And then with the Kinks, he comes in around the Controversy album and plays all yeah. through their incredible run of great classic albums: "Face to Face," "Something Else," "Village Green," "Preservation Society." But then he does have a falling out with Ray Davis. In that case, um, it was definitely a falling out with Nicky himself. Um, Ray. Uh, Davis is not the most easy person to to deal with in any way at all. I had I had I had considerable adventures trying to get an interview out of him for about four years, but um, when he was uh, in the heyday of the, of the of the Kinks, he he was a very uh, he was a control freak. But the, the the rest of the band said that themselves, and um, Nicky worked brilliantly with them and and. Um, in a very wide range. He played organ, he played harpsichord, he played piano on sunny afternoon, on uh, days, on Autumn Almanac, all those great, great singles and many of the album tracks. But when The Village Green came along, he was still playing all over the album and was extremely upset when the album was issued and it said keyboards Ray Davis. Um, So that was one black mark against the kinks. And the second one was that Ray Davis was famously very, very tight with money. And I think the combination of not getting paid and not getting credit um, meant that Nicky said, right, that's it. I'm not working with them anymore. And, And then he gets pulled into a bigger orbit when Brian Jones, the guitar player and founder of the Rolling Stones, did a movie soundtrack without the mm. Stones. And, and it was, it was uh, the German director Volker Schlondorf who did a film called Mord und Totschlag, which was a degree of murder in English. And Brian Jones was asked to do the soundtrack, but he didn't really have the chops to do it. And uh, somebody, probably Glyn Johns, suggested bringing in Nicky, who was uh, a very well trained musician already. And he worked on that soundtrack and, and uh, uh, Brian Jones was so impressed and probably the rest of the Stones um, saw what was going on and decided to call Nicky and to, for, for their next recording in uh, at Olympic Studios. And that was the Between the Buttons album. Right. And then uh, he's... he's only on a couple of the tracks, but uh, he made a, 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 a great impression, I think, on the Stones. And then he's there with them through the entire dreary slog of Satanic Majesties, the year that they were fighting police busts and drug habits. And he dominates the We Love You single, playing the killer piano riff at the beginning of that. Well, I mentioned that particularly in the book um, as an example of one of many, many occasions where Nicky was so elemental to the song that he really should have had a credit. But the Stones, they don't give credit very, very generously. And I, I interviewed Keith Richards, and I actually, I, I was bold enough to point out to him that he, I said, you know, that We Love You was um, the, the piano that Nicky played was so dominant. And Nicky came up with that riff himself. And Keith actually said to me, yeah, without, until Nicky came in with the piano, we didn't really have a song. And I said, <laughs> yeah, but it says Keith Richards and Mick Jagger wrote it. He said, yeah, well, that's the Stones for you, as if it was someone else he was talking about. It was very strange. (laughs) Very classic. And then he goes on to an even bigger role on Beggar's Banquet. Um, Sympathy for the Devil, the Jean-Luc Godard film, chronicles him in the studio from the beginning, just playing an absolutely integral role in the creation of that classic song. Oh, yeah. And and that whole album. um, I mean, that was one of Nicky's actually favorite records that he played on. And the reason was that Brian Jones was in the meantime almost incapacitated and almost not present with the Stones. So they were they were a guitarist short, and there was a lot more room for Nicky's piano. So he really was up in the mix, really prominent on the tracks, and uh, for once you could really hear what he was doing. And that that was something that he was delighted about. And we'll come back to his relationship with the Stones in a minute, but. First, he gets a chance to play with the Beatles. 
That's right. Well, again, we love you. That was that was his first. Uh, I, I imagine he probably had met the Beatles because he worked at Abbey Road so consistently in those years as a session player. But um, we love you. The Stones uh, got John Lennon and Paul McCartney to sing backing vocals, and um, so they they heard Nicky you know, in the context of the Stones, and they must have made a note in their minds that this is somebody they needed to get involved with themselves. And and they certainly do. He, he sits in on the electric version of John Lennon's Revolution and, and plays the big keyboard solo on that. And again, just slots in brilliantly, even with John Lennon's incredibly distorted guitar. Yeah. And, and of course, that was the B-side of Hey Jude. So when it came out, it was an incredibly prominent A and B-side to be on. Nicky had a great knack, actually, of somehow being in... Uh, I, I think there was a sort of zelig quality to his life. He was so often in the right place at the right time. And that was a good example. He only really played on that one Beatles song, but it was a big one, you know? And um, they, they were absolutely delighted. And since the, the band was... Um, almost already in the process of breaking up at that point. Um, obviously, all four members of the Beatles um, had experienced Nicky at his best and called on him later. And let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about the big disruption in Nicky Hopkins' okay. life and a decision that he made. And so by 1968, Nicky Hopkins probably somewhat justifiably felt like he had done it all as far as a British session man. He had played on so many classic tracks and a lot of Duff tracks as well. And he yes. makes this decision. He's, you know, part of the legend is that he had invited, been invited multiple times to join the Who and uh, possibly the Rolling Stones as full members. But he makes a decision that the next touring band that's going to America that invites me, I'm going to accept. And he picks a very talented band, but possibly the worst vehicle <laughs> for a person's career you could have picked. Tell us about Nicky's life with the Jeff Beck group. Well, uh, he, he played on a couple of records with Jeff Beck uh, in London as a, as a session player, I suppose. Um, the B-side of Love is Blue was one, and um, he'd met Keith Moon. There was a, a lineup with Keith Moon and Jeff Beck and Nicky and John Paul Jones, and um, which and was Jimmy a, apparently where... And Jimmy Page, where where um, Keith Moon referred, said this is going to go down like a Led Zeppelin, and and again, Nicky was asked to join Led Zeppelin and turned them down, on the basis of the fact that um, Jimmy Page was calling it the New Yardbirds, and he thought that was with that name they weren't going to get anywhere, so he said no to Led Zeppelin, but yes to Jeff Beck, and I think what really un unravelled the Jeff Beck situation, it would they they made a couple of very well well. Uh, much appreciated albums, well well thought of albums, and went to to the states at exactly the right time, when uh, they they actually beat Led Zeppelin to the states, and um and the the sort of the the hole was there for a heavy metal guitarist who could really play, and he had this tremendous band with Nicky, Rod Stewart singing, Ronnie Wood on uh, bass playing bass while he was a guitar player, and Mickey Waller on the drums. And they made an immediate impact in the States. Um, they opened for the Grateful Dead at the Fillmore West, uh, Fillmore East in New York, excuse me, and apparently blew them off stage. And so everything was looking great. The problem really was in the fact that Jeff Beck's uh, management was Peter Grant and Mickey Most, the producer. And they made, made Jeff Beck's life extremely comfortable and the band was left so often in third-rate hotels while Jeff Beck was in a five-star place up the road. And nobody liked that. They weren't properly paid. And Jeff Beck um, rubbed salt in the wounds by being incredibly unreliable. And at one occasion, while they were playing in New York, they woke up the next morning expecting to play further shows. And Jeff Beck had just gone back to London and abandoned them. Well... That was bad timing because one of the shows that they didn't play was Woodstock, which they were booked to play at. Um, so Jeff Peck missed his opportunity, um, which probably gave Alvin Lee, for instance, and 10 years after the rest of his career. Um, Nicky, however, did manage to be at Woodstock, but not with the Jeff Peck group. Yeah, he makes this transition to the West Coast. Tell us about that segue. Well, um, I think... Um, 
in the book again, I mentioned that that the sort of grey and sort of grey tones of post fifties London um, was quite a depressing place to be. And Nicky had been playing all these these um, faceless and nameless sessions where he got fed up with it. So once he got to America, it probably was a bit like suddenly arriving, like like the Wizard of Oz, suddenly arriving in Technicolor. You know, this wonderful climate and a much freer atmosphere. It was the sort of early part on the West Coast, the early stirrings of flower power and hate Ashbury and all that stuff. And um, he just loved it. He fell in love with it straight away. And um, his ticket, he, 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 when he was on tour with Jeff Beck, he already met the Jefferson Airplane. And back in London, one of his clients via Glyn Johns was Steve Miller, who was recording his um, Brave New World album in London. And was, Nicky was brought in at the very last minute, too late to be credited on the sleeve, and played on Cow Cow Calculator on that album. Steve Miller loved it and got Nicky immediately to come over to, to the West Coast and play on his next album very soon afterwards, which was Your Saving Grace. Uh, for me personally, that's, uh, that album has Nicky's greatest performance, which is Baby's House, which is a sort of eight minute piece, um, where again, he was given a credit by Steve Miller, which is a correct thing to have done. And he played beautifully all over that album. And it was recorded at Wally Hyder's in, um, in, on the West Coast. So he'd arrived and uh, he also played on the Jefferson Airplane's Volunteers album, which was what took him to Woodstock. He played at Woodstock with the Jefferson Airplane as a guest. And he, he didn't want to go back to London. He wanted to stay. And so he was looking for a way to, to do that. And his ticket to remaining on the West Coast came through yet another band, which was Quicksilver Messenger Service, who had already made a good reputation as a guitar-orientated band. And one of their key members, Gary Duncan, left the band. And Quicksilver was looking for a new member and a new direction. And Nicky was there at just the right time. And Nicky actually joins up and, and forms a tight partnership with their guitar player, John Cipollina, and those two look almost exactly alike. It's eerie. Uh, they're both rail thin, long hair, pointy noses, and the two of them share sort of a demented sense of humor. I, I really enjoyed That's that right. part of the book because it gives an insight into Nicky Hopkins' personality. He's been this very buttoned-down kid, frankly, who missed, you know, was comatose for a big chunk of his late teenage years. And he really blossoms as a person, but He's kind of a naughty boy. Well, you know, that goes back a little bit further as well, because, um, you know, anyone who's familiar with John Lennon's um, books that he did, you know, where, he's, where he wrote stories and illustrated them with his cartoons, um, expanded in the works and the, those other things um, that John Lennon did, there was, there was a kind of very sick turn to some of that humor um, that was very much of its time, totally un-PC. Un compared to now. And Nicky had a reputation um, as, a young, as a young player around the time that he was playing with Lord Such and Cyril Davis. He also went to Hamburg to the Star Club and played, um, uh, was over there and got a reputation for being, having a very, very sick sense of humor. And I think with John Cipollina, that came back out again. Um, and they, they just, they would snicker over the craziest stuff that sometimes nobody else really could get. Um, that was, that was pretty harmless. The, the, sadly, that was also the era where Nicky first, having been a very, very clean living young man, he first got into, into drugs in that, in that era. Um, and, uh, that was, he was not the right person to, to have, uh, uh experiences with alcohol and drugs. Definitely not. And let's hear a little bit of Nicky Hopkins with the Jeff Beck group. This is their version of Elvis Presley's All Shook Up.
that was Nikki Hopkins with the Jeff Beck group featuring Rod Stewart doing Elvis's All Shook Up. And I was really struggling with whether to pick that one or the Steve Miller song uh, you just referenced. So I, I went with that one because I want people to hear the way that Nikki Hopkins could hold his own with Jeff Beck in that heavy rock context. Yeah. And it was a really unique thing they were going with that super loud multi-martial stack attack with an acoustic piano. And and it was a really novel thing. And musically, uh, just so much promise in the Jeff Beck group. I've, I've done a couple episodes on them. But yeah, like you said, he gets into San Francisco and suddenly sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He already had the rock and roll part, but now he's got the sex and drugs part. And it's a little bit harder to manage. For a couple years, he's a full member of the Quicksilver Messenger Service. And he even turns down a pivotal, pivotal gig in England with the Rolling Stones. Tell us about that. Well, he, he'd, as I said, he'd, he'd, he'd uh, arrived on the West Coast, loved everything about it. Uh, he was, um, it's another, another part of the story, but he was romantically involved briefly there too. And he just didn't want to go back to the UK. But just while he had arrived in America, Brian Jones died. And the Stones were scheduled to do their Hyde Park concert, which was at that time one of the biggest concerts that had ever been in, in the UK. It was a free concert in Hyde Park. And it was two days after Brian Jones died. And the decision was made to turn it into a tribute to Brian. The Stones made many phone calls asking Nicky to come back and do that show. And he, he kind of pleaded ill, he pleaded illness. Um, he didn't just refuse, but he didn't want to go back even for that because he just loved where he was. And uh, he decided that this was going to be his new, his a new chapter in his life. And, and it certainly was. And um, I, I think in the States, he, he um, had the first opportunity to, to realize that he was a really highly sought of um, player. Whereas in England, he was doing this rather anonymous playing in the studios. Suddenly, you know, when the Jefferson Airplane know all about the records he'd done with the Stones or, or Quicksilver Messenger Service and their fans, he suddenly was like a re had a real profile, which he hadn't previously had. And definitely the kind of thing that can turn a man's head. But something changes in the dynamic of Quicksilver Messenger Service. They bring back Gary Duncan and they bring in a guy who had been a member of the band before they recorded, but hadn't made albums with them. The legendary infamous Dino Valenti, and that didn't go well at all. Well, Gary Duncan, when, when Gary um, left Quicksilver, he, he teamed up with, with Dino Valenti in, a, in a, a different project. And when he decided that, or everyone decided that they missed Gary Duncan, he, he made it a condition that if he was coming back, he was going to bring Dino with him, um, and the, the, which was um, perfectly valid. Um, a fine singer and, and, and a, a arguably a, a, a strong writer, of songs, but unfortunately also an extremely, um, um, well, difficult, unpleasant control freak who took over the, the reins of the band in a way that nobody enjoyed and actually quickly led to, to the breakup of that, of that unit. Uh, Nicky was first to leave and um, I think Quicksilver collapsed. Uh, they reformed later, but initially they collapsed quite quickly after Dino's arrival. They managed two albums together, I think. And that sort of sends Nicky, I wouldn't say crawling back to the Stones, but he's lucky enough to get to record with them on Let It Bleed a little bit on um, Sticky Fingers. And then he's there for the grueling sessions in France to make the exile on Main Street. Right. Um, he was already, I mean, this, this, we're talking about the early 70s at this point, where Nicky is at the absolute zenith of his fame and his uh, of, 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 uh, being in demand. He's played. He's playing with John Lennon on Imagine. He's um, with the Stones. I mean, he's a re he's real rock royalty at that point. And the Stones had to leave the UK because they were because of tax problems. Uh, they you know they they were going to pay hundreds of thousands of pounds in tax if they didn't get out of England for a year. So they chose the next nearest place, which was the south of France, um, to continue recording. And, uh, and they wanted Nicky there too, and he joined them there. He obviously didn't have the same problems financially that they had with tax problems, but <laughs> he certainly joined them there. And parallel to this um, was the fact that Keith Richards w was at his most wasted at that period. He was leading an incredibly... Um, unreliable, um, decadent lifestyle with Anita Pallenberg, his partner, 
and they took a, a large villa in the south of France. And it became kind of band central. Um, the, 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 the idea being Charlie said that everything ran on Keith time, was how he described it. So if you wanted to record, you had to wait until Keith was ready to do it. And that might mean waiting two days sometimes, you know. Or, uh, and then when Keith was there, he might want to record for the next three nights without sleep, you know. And it was all down to Keith because without Keith, there is no stones, as we, as probably anyone, anybody would agree. For somebody like Nicky, who was extremely precise and ready to play, even in his drug years, he was always just absolutely on it. It must have been a, a, a particularly grueling experience to have to hang about waiting for other people to get their, their act together um, so that they could record. And meanwhile, you're trapped in this sort of pharmacopoeia of drugs and booze and sex with nothing to do but kill time. So it's certainly Correct. you can certainly see why ev virtually everyone in that circle um, picked up nastier and nastier drug habits. And Nikki was no exception. Yeah, the Stones are famous for that. I think, um, I mean, one of the people we didn't mention, but Jimmy Miller, who produced the records from Beggar's Banquets going forwards, was an immensely talented and vibrant um, uh, addition to the Stones and to many other bands, Traffic, for instance, as well. But he got drawn into that kind of heroin lifestyle and, and it, 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 it took him out. Same with, with Andy Johns, um, same with Mick Taylor. Nicky um, was the, the very worst candidate for that kind of lifestyle because he was already so weakened by his health problems. And he even uh, gets dragged along to Jamaica for the Goat's Head Soup Sessions, which are infamous for the dissolute lifestyles and, you know, kind of the yeah. match had been yeah. Well, and th that was just after the 1972 tour, which was really legendary for its um, you know, for the for the decadence that went with it, um, there were there were there was a movie made called. Well, I don't know if we can say this on the on the radio. There you was can, a movie you can made. say it. Okay, uh, Cocksucker Blues, which was never released uh, officially, but um, you know the Stones willingly allowed filmmakers to make footage of, of groupie situations, groupie action, um, drug use uh, involving injecting and snorting drugs on camera. You know. And that was the, the that was the the the, the, the sort of ambiance that Nicky was around all the time, and he came off that tour with a with a habit himself. He was still based in Mill Valley at that point, but really around those years he was in such demand that he was living a kind of transatlantic lifestyle. He had a house in the UK and he was still part based in in Mill Valley or, or later in Los Angeles, and he was you know flying back and forwards because he was playing with George Harrison at one end and, you know, um, whoever, um, Nilsson at the other end. You know, it was just, uh, he was constantly in demand. And I love in the book how you referenced how he's got a featured spot in the 1972 Rolling Stones tour booklet, and yet Keith Richards had no memory of him being on the tour. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I talked to Keith. Um, I, 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 the question I put to Keith was, did Nicky's health problems ever cause... Uh, problems in the studio that he had to maybe go home or, or that he could and he said yeah that's why we never took him on tour and I, I was kind of unsure what to say at that point um, <laughs> I kind of we kind of glossed over it um, because really that is the legendary stone tour of all time and I and I, I, met, I went straight on because Nicky was in Australia with the stones in early 73 as well and one of the concerts it was his birthday and there's a, I've got a bootleg tape of, of the crowd singing, you know, 26,000 people singing Happy Birthday, Nicky Hopkins. And I said, I mentioned this to Keith and he said, oh, yeah, that was Perth, Australia, as if we hadn't just had the other bit of the conversation at all. <laughs> so I, I do wonder when Keith did his own book, how much of it was actually his own input and how much of it was put together by other people. Yeah, it's quite interesting to compare with interviews, say, of 1971 and his book, but that's a different topic. But let's hear yeah. one of... Nikki Hopkins' last big featured hits. This is Joe Cocker's You Are So Beautiful. Thank you. 
And that was Joe Cocker's hit, You Are So Beautiful, with Nicky Hopkins all over that song. And this is from a period of Nicky's life where he was really struggling, where things had caught up with him, the lifestyle had caught up with him. And he had also made a fateful decision to turn down some opportunities with the Stones, and those opportunities never came back. What was it that he was doing that he couldn't make time for the Stones? Well, he was playing um, around exactly that same period. He was John Lennon's favorite piano player. He was playing with George Harrison on a number of records. He, got, he particularly loved George. He got on great with George Harrison. And bearing in mind that, you know, the Stones are obviously the greatest, you know, might be the greatest rock and roll band in the world, but the Beatles were still the absolute high point of everyone's um, belief in pop music at that time. I mean, that was the, the top of the mountain. And he was working with all four of them. He was also in demand by all these A-list people like Joe Cocker um, and all those West Coast bands. And he, he was trying to make America his base. Um, he, he moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles because obviously L.A. is the center, like London was in the U.K. L.A. was the center of all the recording activity. So it was the best place for him to be as a session musician he had I, I think the thing with the stones was it wasn't just that they were offended that he turned them down there was an element that they nicky had his health caught up with him in that period where he was uh, abusing drugs substances and alcohol so badly so he'd become um an unreliable person to have on tour and also around that time uh, another element which was important was that billy preston came into the picture who was a much more pushy and ambitious guy than Nicky was. And he kind of elbowed Nicky out of the stones, I, I have a feeling. Um, you know, they, they were both, they had both appeared on certain albums um, on different tracks. But, but Billy Preston was somebody who really kind of, he wanted to make his mark and he, he pushed his way into the stones world and made himself, made, I guess, sort of more indispensable than Nicky did. And Nicky kind of um, backed away. And Nicky was also busy, though, with his own solo album. And there was a Svengali behind the scenes whispering in Nicky's ear. Tell us about his relationship with his wife, Dolly, and how she impacted his career. Well, that, that's a very important element, which, which also impacts this story. Um, Nicky met um, his, his, who became his wife, Dolly. Um, she was actually called Linda, but she was christened. Um, he always called her Dolly. That was her nickname. In, he met her. He met her in the Quicksilver era in, on the West Coast, and um, because he wanted to stay there, um, one of the things that uh, one of the easiest ways that people uh, achieved that for for English people was to get married. And Nicky made a very unromantic proposal to his girlfriend Dolly that he'd met, um, and said, "You know, I need a green card. Do you want to get married?" And she said, yes. Well, she was um, described by other musicians, various other musicians that I talked to, variously as a witch, a groupie, a ghoul, a vampire. She was not a well-liked person. Um, for Nicky, I think it was important that he had somebody that could be with him at all times and help take care of him. Uh, she was a much more ambitious person than he was. She wanted a rock star husband. And around that time, Nikki's um, reputation with it was at its absolute height. And several session players like him or Bobby Keys got record deals of their own. And Nikki signed up a really pretty impressive record contract with CBS to, to make five albums and um, finally went in to make a Nikki Hopkins solo album. He'd actually made one in the 60s, This Shall Tell Me, which was an instrumental record. Um, which was more like sort of easy listening almost. But the, the, his first album, uh, really, where he was at the controls himself, to some extent anyway, was Tin Man Was a Dreamer, which he recorded in mostly in the UK. And he had all these star guests to call on. So George Harrison was playing guitar, Peter Frampton was playing guitar, Klaus Foreman was playing bass uh, on this record. When it finally came out... Um, a lot of the comments about the record were that it sounded like Nicky Hopkins was a session guy on his own record because he simply didn't have the ego 
or the sort of stage presence to be the centre of the picture. Yeah, and and you um, can you can hear it, and it's a well crafted album, but there's not a vision behind it. There's not a drive, and you contrast that with Billy Preston, who was a credible singer songwriter, uh, and, yeah. and had his own solo career, and, and you can really kind of see the difference. But it was just, you know, like you said, you you quoted a string of of slurs that people had thrown at his wife, but the the term spinal tap also comes up, and it, it's um, yes, that's right. You know, it seems like he's very much living the rock and roll nightmare with the the very ambitious, controlling wife who's dramatically overplaying her hand politically and his hand financially. And he also gets and sucked she, up. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. No, the, well, I, just to say that she did upset a lot of people he worked with, particularly the Stones. They hated having her around on tour, but Nikki refused to, to travel without her. So she she if, if you wanted Nikki, you had to have Dolly. And um, that definitely caused some bad blood. And he also got sucked up into a situation at CBS Records that we've covered on many episodes with when Clive Davis went down in a scandal. I guess he misappropriated funds, allegedly, and, and spent record company funds on his kids' bar mitzvah and different things mm -hmm. and got taken out as president of CBS Records. And Nikki was one of Clive's signings. So uh, even if the record had been more successful, he wasn't going to get a second. I think they did cut a second album, but didn't put it out because Clive wasn't there. He did cut a second album. It was one of the most fascinating things about getting to know Nikki's second wife, who became his widow, uh, was that he was an immense hoarder and collector. So everything he'd done, he kept. And one of the things that was a fascinating find was to find that unreleased album that he did for CBS. It was called The Long Journey Home. And it was... Um, it could possibly arguably even slightly better than the first one, but very similar, similar, um, you know, star appearances of other, other great musicians. And it never appeared at all and still hasn't. Hmm. And, and then as he's struggling, uh, he gets together with two other reprobates, Bobby Keys, the sax player, uh, famous for the Brown Sugar solo and, and playing with Delaney and Bonnie and friends and so many other groups and Joe Cocker and Joe Cocker, who, infamously burned out after the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. And the three of them come back together. They have the big hit with You Are So Beautiful um, and just it doesn't work out. None of them clean up their lifestyle and they don't produce a second album. Uh, there was there was some brilliant stories around that time. If, if you'd, I mean, there's a certain sad element to it, of course, as well. But Joe's career had gone down the tubes in a very similar way to Nikki's at that point. Because he, you know, he'd burned so many bridges, and um, Michael Lang, who was the uh, promoter of the Woodstock Festival, picked Joe up and decided to kind of re restart his career. And the way, one of the ways he did that was to get a very um, low low rent accompanying band who he picked up near Boston, um, to, who were cheap to take on the road. And he added Nicky and Bobby Keys as sort of um, you know alibi famous people and great players to make it a better band. But unfortunately, all three of them were their absolute worst. And they got chucked off airplanes. They did dreadful interviews where they were, you know, uh, absolutely three sheets to the wind. Joe would sing a couple of verses of a song, go off stage and throw up on the side of the stage. Nicky would be off his head, um, often didn't know the title of the songs. He just said, oh, this one's G flat, you know. So it was pretty chaotic. And Nicky has the distinguishing um, mark on his career of being uh, thrown out of Joe Cocker's band for drinking too much. So it's really quite an achievement. <laughs> it really is. And the story you tell about the time they rigged up a safety belt to keep him on his piano bench uh, was funny, but also very sad. Well, that, that was, to me, uh, I, I had that story. I, I thought that was a, a sort of a miss when I first heard about it. And then I met Greg Douglas, who was actually there at the time, and told me that story was true, which was that Nicky was so, he was drinking so much tequila and was so out of it when he was rehearsing on the West Coast. This was with um, uh, Terry Dolan's band, Country Weather at that point. And uh, he was doing himself harm because he would, he would do some wonderful glissando on the piano up, the, up to the right hand end of the piano and continue into space and fall off his chair and hurt himself. So they rigged up this, this sort of, um, seatbelt for him to stop him doing that 
And I must say that uh, funny as that scene is, and he said it was very funny, it's also probably as near to rock bottom as Nicky got in his life, if, if from the point of view of like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, he was really at the bottom of uh, the lowest ebb. And things, he, he was at one point uh, in hospital again on the West Coast and was told by the doctors if he didn't change his lifestyle, he wouldn't, he wouldn't live for, for, for weeks. He was going to be dead, dead in weeks. And he did turn it around and, and managed to have a much healthier final chapter of his life. He did. He did. Uh, um, controversially, his way out of his addictions was with uh, a drug program, co- program called Narconon, which was um, related or a- allied to the Scientology movement. Uh, obviously, for many, many people, a very, very controversial um, area of life, uh, generally speaking. The one unarguable fact in Nikki's life, was that it, which he said himself to me when I knew him, was that it saved his life. Well, that's got to be something good. Um, he was involved with Scientology to more, to a greater or lesser extent, all the rest of his life. Uh, he divorced the uh, Dolly, uh, who was his partner in crime by then, and you know, codependent in their drug and alcohol adventures. Um, and he met his second wife, who was really a perfect match for him, Moira, um, who was Scottish but living in LA, and also um, they met through Scientology channels. And um, they uh, got, fell in love and got married. And he, he was um, sober, completely sober for seven years at the end of his life. Um, and that, that was the period when I actually met him as well and, and was, was lucky enough to do, do some work with him. And I think that's, and then moves to Nashville and um, passes away sadly at age 50. So yeah. Um, this is just an incredible story. It's even somebody like Nikki Hopkins, who's in the background and the shadows still can't avoid that rise and fall narrative that comes with this kind of talent and success. And I mean, everything from the spinal tap girlfriend to getting mixed up with Scientology, uh, his years on the West coast, he really did it all, uh, for his era, even for such a frail and unhealthy person. He really did live an incredible life. He, he fitted an amazing amount into his life. And I mean, that sort of 30 years, say from 1962, when he started with Screaming Lord Such, to 1992, two years before his death, he'd played with almost everyone. It's really, it would be easier to say who he didn't play with than who he did play with. It was that crazy. I mean, uh, anyone who's interested, the book tells it all. And we we went to great lengths to make an ext- a truly um, accurate, uh, discography of what Nicky had done. I know it will never be complete because there's always something that you miss. Um, but right up to the very end, I mean, you know, when he, when he was in a down period of his life, he was still playing with Graham Parker, Meatloaf, uh, Art Garfunkel, you know, really famous name people. Not not perhaps the same caliber as the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, but great names and and currently very successful people. And he left Los Angeles. Uh, because of the earthquake uh, in the early part of 94 and moved to Nashville. Some people moved to Austin, Texas. His friend Ian McLagan moved to Austin. Nicky chose Nashville as somewhere where there were a lot of studios and a lot of publishers and looked like he was going to settle down there and be very happy. And that's when his his illness caught up with him and he had a, a major medical crisis and that's when he died. And the book is And on Piano, Nicky Hopkins, The Extraordinary Life of Rock's Greatest Session Man, author Julian Dawson. Julian, it's been a real treat to talk about Nicky Hopkins. And thank you so much for telling his story and capturing something that could easily have been forgotten. Well, I'm always delighted when more people find out about Nicky because he deserves so much more attention than he got in his life. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Barry Alfonso to talk about Rock McEwen, the songwriter who at one point was the best-selling poet in the history of the English language and one of the most critically reviled musicians in history. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.